Today we come to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at the middle section here. Matthew 9, 9 through 7, verse 17. Remember, we're in this, this narrative section of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, in case you've forgotten this already, Matthew goes from narrative to preaching to narrative to preaching to narrative. All right? So Matthew chapters 1 through 4 is, is narrative. Chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus' awesome preaching, probably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who's ever preached. And now we've come through, through, through Matthew chapter 8, which is narrative. Matthew chapter 9 is also narrative. Soon, we get into chapter 10, we're going to get into more preaching from Jesus. But Matthew has organized chapters 8 and 9, remember, with, with sets of three miracles. And then they're separated by by uh, uh, these, these sections on discipleship. Jesus teaches us about discipleship. Now that first discipleship segment centered on the radical demands of King Jesus. That was in chapter 8. This particular segment is another discipleship segment. This segment centers on the reality and the, and the meaning of the new kingdom that Jesus was teaching and preaching about. It means a new social concept uh, as Jesus has, he hasn't come for the elite, the special of this world, the, uh, the, the, no. It's not the superficially pious like the scribes and the Pharisees. What we learn here is Jesus has come for people who are true sinners, for people who know they're sinners, the downtrodden, the despised, the, the outcast of society. In the first nine verses of chapter nine, we, we've already seen this last week that Jesus forgave sin. He forgives sin. And now we're going to see that Jesus' ministry is is continuing on here with sinners. Here Jesus goes uh, beyond just reaching out to despise people. This is amazing what Jesus does here. Jesus actually invites one of the most despised people on planet earth to be a part of his apostolic band. He invites Matthew to be one of his apostles. Just think about that. Can, can you believe that? He takes one of the most despised sinners on planet Earth and, and turns him into an apostle. Only Jesus can do that. One of the remarkable incidents we saw in, in Matthew chapter 8 was how Jesus actually helped a Roman centurion. Can you believe it? A Roman centurion, the enemy, the one who was occupying their territory the leader of, of Roman soldiers, actually helped that man and his servant. This man was also a Gentile, which Jews didn't like Gentiles. And then on top of that, not only is he a Gentile, he's actually a Roman soldier. But Jesus helped that man, despite the fact he was a Roman centurion and a Gentile, whom most Jews would have called unclean, with whom they would have had no social contact. Jesus not only had social contact, he actually helped the man. But in this case here, okay, as radical as that was, this is even more radical. Matthew himself, remember, he's a Jew, but he is even worse than a centurion in a Jew's eye. Okay, you gotta, gotta get your mindset here. How, how were the Jews thinking? Matthew's even worse. He's a traitor. He's a downright traitor to his own country. He's unacceptable in at least three ways. Let me, let me, to help you understand this, let's talk about these three ways, okay? Number one, he's politically unacceptable. He is politically unacceptable. As a tax collector, remember, Matthew's a tax collector, which is, okay, get IRD out of your brain here, okay? <laughs> okay. I, I don't know what you think about IRD. I don't particularly like them. You probably don't either. But, Tax collectors were even more hated than, than anybody could possibly be hated in IRD. He's a tax collector. He's joined the enemy, the evil Roman Empire. And that was enough to ostracize him. But in addition to that, tax collectors often grew rich. And, and they grew rich because they would extort their own people. They would rip off their own people. They'd not only take what the Roman government wanted, but they would, they would take even more, which is how they made themselves rich. There was a duty tax of somewhere between 
you know, 2% to 12% that was actually levied on all imported goods and exported goods. There were taxes uh, for using the roads, the main roads for if you crossed over a bridge, you probably get taxed. If you entered into a town to, to into uh, a town to do something in the market, you'd probably get taxed. If you if you used a harbor, you'd probably get taxed. I'm giving you a picture here of Capernaum, where Capernaum is. Remember, Capernaum's up on that, that northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a there was a major road called the Via Maris that, that, that came down through that area and, and Matthew's a tax collector in this region. He's he's sitting there at the main road, the Via Maris, ripping people off. Traitor to his own country. He was politically unacceptable. So Matthew's at this this junction here. He's levying taxes on all the goods passing in and out of that area. And in the process made himself very rich. Number two he was religiously unacceptable. He was religiously unacceptable. You say why? Because again, you got to get your you got to get yourself in their sandals, all right? He was considered unclean in the Jews' eyes. Jewish law barred tax collectors from all synagogue services, which was a radical thing in that that time period. They were not even allowed to be a witness in the court of law. That's that's how ostracized they were. So here's here's poor old Matthew. He's joined up with the enemy. He's he's a traitor of his own country. He's hated by everyone, pretty much. So he's politically unacceptable. He's religiously unacceptable. And number three, he's he's socially unacceptable. As a result of all that, you know, nobody really likes him except maybe maybe other tax collectors. <laughs> Religious Jews spoke of those who failed to keep every petty detail of the law as people of the land literally what that's talking about the orthodox were forbidden to go on journeys with them orthodox jews were forbidden to do any business with them uh, they, they wouldn't give them anything wouldn't receive anything from them weren't allowed to have them in their house they, they couldn't be a guest and you certainly wouldn't go to a tax collector's house Matthew's one of these so-called bad people. Okay, I'm kind of setting the scene for you here. I'm kind of setting you up to you understand. Actually, what Jesus does here is is radical. Now, here's the wonderful thing about this: though though Matthew's politically unacceptable, he's socially unacceptable, he's religiously unacceptable, at least to the self-righteous Jews of the days, particularly the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew was not unacceptable to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus called Matthew to follow him. That's what, that's what Jesus tells him. Follow me. And you know what Matthew does? He obeys. He obeys. Let's, let's look at this, this story now. Matthew chapter 9, verse, we'll start in verse 9. We see that Jesus calls Matthew here to be a disciple, to be one of the apostles. Look at Matthew 9, verse 9. We get the setting here in verse uh, nine. This is this is the setting. Remember uh, earlier, Jesus has uh, he went across the Sea of Galilee to the east side. Now he's come back to Capernaum. So here he is. Here's the setting in verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, that he's he's come out he's come out of Capernaum. He sees Matthew. It says he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. So we, we also see Jesus' command there. Jesus commands him, follow me. That's, that is a present imperative active in the Greek. Present, whenever you see anything present in Greek, it means it's continuous action. Jesus is calling him to, no, don't, don't just do this once, okay? Don't just go on a little walk in the garden here, okay? I'm calling you to a lifetime of following. A lifetime of discipleship. And it's imperative. That means it's a command. It's not an option. Jesus commands him to follow him. And whenever you see anything inactive, that means Jesus is talking to Matthew here. Okay, Matthew's the one who's supposed to obey this. That's Jesus' command. And we see Jesus' response, or sorry, Matthew's response is he rose and followed him. 
Matthew obeys. Matthew doesn't talk a whole lot about this because Matthew's humble enough. <laughs> uh, to, he, doesn't, he doesn't really mention everything about what's going on here. But if you read Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually mentions that Matthew left everything. Matthew's humble enough not to mention that. So he left everything. He probably had to pay a, a hefty amount of money to, to get this franchise. You, know, you, you had to buy into this Roman system. So he's wealthy as a result of this. And, and Matthew's just leaving that all behind. Jesus commands him to follow him. Matthew, I'm just leaving that. And I'm following Christ. That's Matthew's response. That's amazing enough as it is, but look what happens next year because we see that Jesus has fellowship not only with a tax collector, as, as if that's, whoa, Jesus having fellowship with a tax collector. He actually goes to his house, and there's other people there as well. Look, look at this, verse 10. Here's, here's the setting in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, now it doesn't say whose house, but Luke says it's Matthew's house. So that's, that's the scene here. Jesus reclining at table in Matthew's house. Notice it says, Behold, many tax collectors and, not just tax collectors, but sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus has some of his other disciples there as well. So I want you to notice a few things here. Number one, Matthew's wealthy. He's become wealthy as a result of being a tax collector. He has a big enough house to have a lot of people there for a meal. And, and I'm assuming he's the one who paid for the meal. And how do we know Matthew's wealthy? Because you, got, you have to have a big house to have that many people, right? And most people are living in these little small rooms. Matthew can afford a big enough place to, to have a big group. Now, you need to understand something else, is that meals were important social occasions in the first century. And they, they'd been that way for a long, long time. And, and for, for many in the, the Middle East, it still is. So meals are important social occasions. It, it would define your peer, groups, your peer groups and your social status. They had a saying, I don't know where this comes from, but here's the saying, to share a meal is to share a life. Share a meal is to share a life. And so if you shared a meal, that meant you were accepted into that group. Well, Matthew already knew he's accepted in the tax collectors. <laughs> and so he lumps in the sinners there as well. We'll talk about that, who they are in a moment. But Jesus, he comes into the midst of this cauldron, <laughs> humbles himself to go there to, to minister to these people. So Matthew did not invite the elite. He didn't invite the Pharisees. He knew they wouldn't come anyway. Because Pharisees, they, you know, they didn't want anything to do with sinners. They're quite happy to call sinners to repentance, but they would only do it at a distance, lest they pollute themselves and make themselves unclean. So there's no way they're going to a tax collector's house. There's no way they're going into the midst of all these sinners. Matthew invites, he doesn't invite the elite. He invites his own kind. Why does he do this? Well, one, one, re, one reason I think he's doing is this, this is a celebration. He, he wants to introduce Jesus, this man that he's now going to follow for the rest of his life until he dies. He wants to introduce this Jesus to his friends. He wants to explain his change of allegiance and his change of occupation. He's going to explain to everybody whom he can, what's this radical change all about? Notice Matthew invites sinners. That's what it says in our Bibles in verse 10. Not only tax collectors, but it says sinners. These sinners, by the way, were the worst of that society of that day. So, so in my, my understanding, as I was studying this, we're talking about people like prostitutes, the pimps, the thieves, the gamblers, and so forth. Okay, the worst of that day of their society. Matthew is inviting the tax collectors and those kind of people to his house. And Jesus comes into the midst of that. That's the setting. Well, somehow the Pharisees learn about this. You know, they got their big noses stuck into everybody's business, apparently. Particularly Jesus' business. They, 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 they got to keep an eye on him, see what this 
this radical teacher is up to. And so they got a complaint in verse 11. Look at the Pharisees' complaint in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Oh, no. Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners. So the Pharisees, as I said, were probably not in Matthew's house since that is, that is not their typical way of doing things. They, they would never sit down at a meal because remember, a meal is, you're sharing your life with, with the people there. You're, you're saying you're on the same level as them when you're sitting at a meal with them. So Pharisees, they wouldn't do that. And they don't have, apparently they don't have the, the guts to go and pollute themselves by talking to Jesus and asking Jesus the question. So they go to Jesus' disciples. So here they are. They're at a distance. They see what's going on. They, what, what is this? And they're looking, of course, for anything they can to get at Jesus. They didn't want to associate intimately with these sinners at table. No way. So that's their complaint. Well, Jesus knows everything, and he responds. Look at Jesus' response in verse 12 and 13. Jesus responds in verses 12 and 13. Look at uh, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a good, let me comment on verse 12 here. This, we need to understand. What's going on here? What is Jesus actually saying here in his response? We need to understand that this particular saying that Jesus gives in verse 12 was a common proverb. Don't go there yet, please. This was a common proverb in the ancient world. Um, and, and it's built on the obvious fact that, of course, this is obvious, isn't it? Doctors are needed for sick people, right? <laughs> and, and you have to understand, uh, particularly in this time period, doctors would go to your house. Doctors would go to the sick person and deal with the sick person. Doctors wouldn't go and visit somebody who was healthy, right? That's obvious. So Jesus is using this common proverb of the ancient world. Of course, Jesus means it here allegorically. and he's, he, he means it allegorically. He's talking about spiritually sick people. Not physically sick people. So here's the healthy. The healthy are the ones, are, are these Pharisees. They, they think they're healthy anyway. And the sick are the sinners. And Jesus, by the way, he's not saying that these, these Pharisees are actually healthy. That's not what he's saying. But rather Jesus is saying this. I have not come for those who believe they're healthy. I'm not come for those who think they're spiritually healthy. In fact, Jesus says, I've come for those who know they're sick, who know they're sinners. Those are the ones Jesus is saying, I've come for. And I like what uh, the MacArthur Study Bible says here in verse 13. Look at, look at this. It says this. Talking about the, this phrase in verse 13, which is, go and learn what this means. Here's what it, here's what it says. Quote, This phrase was commonly used as a rebuke for those who did not know something they should have known. So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Hey, you guys who claim to know the Old Testament, you missed something rather important here. And Jesus, the, the, the verse Jesus actually cites here in verse 13 is coming from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which emphasizes the absolute priority of the law's moral standards over the ceremonial requirements. The Pharisees tended to focus on the outward ritual and ceremonial aspects of God's law to the neglect of its inward, eternal, and moral precepts. In doing so, they became harsh, judgmental, and self-righteously scornful of others. End quote. So that's what Jesus is, is saying there in verse 13. He's rebuking them. Go and learn. You, you already know this. Go and learn it, you guys who think you know the Old Testament. And so he quotes there from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. By the way, Jesus is not saying 
you know, stop sacrificing. But what, that, that's a, that's a Middle Eastern way of saying, hey, I desire mercy more than the sacrifice. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. Don't, don't quit your sacrifice. But mercy is, is the more important issue there. I got a question for you. Does it look like Matthew is truly converted? Would you say Matthew is truly converted? I think he was. And I think he shows in it in at least three ways. Number one. Number one, we see in verse nine, he got up and followed Jesus. A true believer follows the Lord, right? That's the way it is. It's always that way. True believer follows the Lord, puts the Lord first in his life. Why? Because an inactive faith is no faith at all. James says that, right? An inactive faith is no faith. James talks about, hey, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. The works don't save, but if there's no works, it's showing you're not a genuine believer. You're not a Christian. Now here's somebody who actually shows his faith by his works. He gets up and follows the only one who can save him. Saving faith shows in your actions. Number two, he left everything to follow Jesus. He left everything to follow Jesus. That would have been very uncomfortable. He lost, he, he, he lost the big house. He lost the mansion of his day. Wealthy occupation. Matthew doesn't say it, of course. I, I already told you this, but Luke says that Matthew left everything. Nothing is, is allowed to stand in the way of one who is a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ demands that we leave all family relationships. And he comes first. Lands, wealth, money, people, you name it. That's what you have to do to be a genuine disciple of Christ. Truly converted people will leave their houses, their lands, their family, their relationships. Everything else will be left behind to follow Christ. Do you, do you get that? Do you understand that? So you must hold loosely to the things of this world and this life that you have. King Jesus comes first. If you don't do that, then you have to question your salvation. If there's anything that comes before King Jesus, you must question your salvation. The scripture says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So this is showing that I think he's truly converted. Number three, he had compassion on the unsaved. He had compassion on sinners. In fact, he, he what is he doing here? He's actually arranging to have other people into his house to meet with Jesus. Now, this, just think about this for a moment. This, he's going to get shot from both sides in the process, isn't he? I mean, the religious leaders, they're not going to like this. His tax collector friends probably aren't going to like this once Jesus starts talking to them and teaching to them. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of those sinners aren't going to like, like it either. I mean, he's, he's just going to get it from everywhere. And so this is a natural act for those, for, for those that Jesus has actually saved. People who are saved want to share King Jesus with other people. So let me ask you, are you introducing people to Jesus? If you're not, again, you have to question your salvation. If you have no desire to tell other people about Jesus, you got big problems. More than just a lack of witnessing, you, you got serious heart issues. And we cannot make people Christians, of course. But it is something only God can do, right? And so we must do everything possible to tell them about Jesus. That's what Matthew does here. He wants all these people, everyone possible, to meet Jesus. So what lessons can we learn from this story? What lessons can we learn? Number one, look at this closely. God's offer of salvation is to all people. It's to all people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a universalist, okay? All right? I'm not going to say that all people are going to be saved. All right? That, that, that's certainly not the case. But the offer of salvation is out there on the table for all. All people. The gospel's meant for all. And, and this is, in, is, is, of course, seen here a, a 
glaring good example, Jesus' choice of a tax collector to be actually one of his 12 apostles. And it's a beautiful story. It's a great story. We, we ought to glory in, in Jesus Christ in the gospel saving someone who is a tax collector. Anyone may come to Jesus and find salvation. If tax collectors can do it, you can do it. And anybody else you know can do it. And there's many people today who believe, hey, you know, I've just sinned too much. I, I have way too much sin. There's no way God could forgive my sin. Well, you haven't sinned more than a tax collector. And then there's others who think that God cannot love anyone like them for whatever reason. Maybe they, they think they've, they've committed the unpardonable sin or something. I don't know. You know, or maybe they, so-called, they have, they have this dichotomy between big sins and little sins, and maybe they think they've committed one of those big sins. God doesn't have that, that going on in his mind. So th- th- this is clearly wrong. If you believe this lie, my friend, then you need to understand that salvation is a free gift. It's a gift of God's grace, God's mercy. And, and may I remind you that God's grace and His mercy is unlimited. He wants to bestow that on you and anybody who comes to Him to ask forgiveness of sins. Number two, what else do we learn? We must show that Jesus... Uh, we must show Jesus' love to society's sinners. Just as Jesus did. You need to do that. And here's, i got to confess to you, here's one of the most convicting quotes that, I've, that I'm ever going to read to you. Because as I was studying this, and for most of my life, I must confess, I kind of related myself to Matthew. Hey, I received God's call at age 15 to the ministry. Just, I mean, Matthew's not 15, obviously, but I received that same sort of call from God to ministry, just as Matthew did. I'm kind of relating myself to Matthew as, a, as I was studying that, uh, this passage this past week. But now that I look at this, you know what? I'm not Matthew. I'm the Pharisee. And I can't help but ask how many of us are Pharisees. As you think about this for a moment, just ask this question. Are, are you like me? You've been thinking of yourself as someone like Matthew? Or are you actually a Pharisee? What often happens as we, as, we, as we grow and mature in our Christian life, the longer we're a Christian, sometimes it's, it's almost that natural progression. You end up turning into a Pharisee. Okay, So, so look at this. Look at this. Okay? Here's this, this very convicting quote. Jesus fraternizing with disreputable people remains a scandal in the predominantly middle-class suburban Western church. Many of us, like the Pharisees, at best ignore the outcast of our society and at worst continue to discriminate against them. We do well to consider substantially increasing our spiritual, evangelistic, and social outreach to minorities, the homeless, prostitutes, addicts, and pushers, gays and lesbians, AIDS victims, and the like, as well as to the more hidden outcasts such as divorcees, single parents, the elderly, white-collar alcoholics, and so on. We must get to know them as intimately as Jesus did. Only close and trusted friends shared table fellowship over meals. We dare not join with sinners in their sinning, but we may well have to go places with them and encounter the world's wickedness in ways that the contemporary Pharisees in our churches will decry. End quote. Do you get the point? That way, that, that may well convict you as much as it's, man, it's hit me right between the eyeballs this week. Knocked me for a loop. In many ways, I'm a Pharisee. That's wrong. I believe God's convicted me of that. Now, for much of my life, I've tried not to be a Pharisee. I've tried, I mean, you know, I've had, I remember when I was in, in Hawks Bay, for example, I had um, a woman who, uh, she, she was getting out of jail. She had nowhere else to turn. She called, called me at some ungodly time of the night, and, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't really know this person. Uh, okay, you've been in jail for violence? Okay, I'm going to let you into my house where I have children and my wife. Yeah, I, was, I was questioning, did God really want me to do this sort of thing? She's, she's the example of a sinner here. But we did. God protected us. 
God didn't always protect us, I must say. We've had stuff stolen. You let these kind of sinners that Jesus associates it, you know, into your home and you, you minister to them, they're going to rip you off. I've had people steal my money, steal my stuff. Okay? So, I mean, I, I've tried to do what God wants me to do, but I can't help but think how much of a Pharisee am I. I can't help if you're a Pharisee. It's a good question to ask. We need to show Jesus' love to society sinners. That's uncomfortable. That is messy business. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. All right? It's going to take a lot of time, sweat, blood, and tears. You're going to get stuff stolen. You're going to have a lot of heartbreaks. But this is the king's business that he tells us to do. This is what he did when he was here. He calls us to do the same. By the way, don't forget you're a sinner. Okay? Right? Show some grace to those who need God's grace. God's shown you grace. Number three, our church should desire mercy more than sacrifice. Sacrifice is a great thing, don't get me wrong, but we God, God desires mercy more than sacrifice. And too many of us are Pharisees at heart. We're hypocrites. We, we like to talk the talk, but do we actually walk the walk? Do we actually walk what we talk about? Do we practice what we preach, so to speak? We don't always do what we say, do we? I don't always do what I say. That's wrong. May God forgive me for that. It's easy to be, for example, it's very easy for us to become churchified. That means we perform all the external rituals, but we fail to have a heart for God and for other people. We, we don't actually love Jesus with all, and we don't love other people as we love ourselves. The Pharisees, they loved only their own kind. They had no mercy, no love for despised in the society, no contact with them at all. A true biblical church is going to have um, community ministry, worldwide ministry even. It shows God's love to all people. It doesn't matter what their race or their intelligence level or their social standing is. By the way, this is, this is true for ministry that's, that's outside our church as well as inside our church. Okay, One of the problems um, that our church and many churches have, Okay, I'm not just picking on us, this is this is a common problem many churches is when when the sinner the kind that Jesus associates with comes into the fellowship they they feel really awkward you know the clicks are going on they find it hard to break into the clicks you know what I'm talking about you know you, you you see yourself standing around having your coffee or your tea and 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 they might walk in and and they're not looking very nice they don't smell very nice and they might be asking for money or whatever and and, and we don't really want to talk to them. Shame on us. When those kind of people come in, we ought to flock to them. You, you drop your coffee, your tea, you stop talking with your clique, and, 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 get, and zoom in on them. Those are the people whom Jesus loves. That's desiring mercy more than sacrifice. Number four, Jesus turns lives around and does great things through them. That's, that's one of the great lessons we can learn from this. God takes people like me and Matthew and you and turns us around and is able to use us for His kingdom and His service and for the cause of Christ. Throughout the Bible, we constantly see God overcoming Adam's sin from Genesis 3, right? Bringing people to Himself who've continually rejected Him and His grace and mercy. So just think about this. If Jesus can use a despised tax collector and bring him into his band of apostles, use him to write scripture, and to be a martyr, he can use each of us to do great things as well. Of course he can. So, so don't think, you know, I, I can't. You can. Okay? God will, he, he will enable you to do exactly what he wants you to do. Alright, well let's read on in our story here, because... We, the, the discipleship continues here in verse 14. In this case, we have a question about fasting. In this case, not only is it the Pharisees who are picking on Jesus, we actually have John the Baptist uh, disciples here as well. The Pharisees are probably egging them on. So look at the controversy here. And again, we have a question in verse 14. 
Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so we have John the Baptist's disciples, the Pharisees, they're, 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 they're asking this question. Why do we do this? Wait, we, we're fasting. Yeah, we're looking spiritual. But, but how come Jesus and his disciples aren't? Okay, you need to understand something here that, that what, what often happened in that society is, is, uh, there were, there were two times a year that you were required to fast if you were a Jew. Okay? Like the Day of Atonement was one of them. All right, so on the Day of Atonement, and, and I forget the other one, you were supposed to fast, right? You're not supposed to eat. But what John the Baptist's uh, uh, followers and the Pharisees were doing, they, they added to the law and said, okay, we're, we're going to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Every Monday and Thursday, we're going to fast. And you know what the Pharisees were like. The, the additions to the law were equal with the law and sometimes even trumped the law. And so they can't understand, why isn't everybody else doing what we're doing? Hey, we're spiritual. We fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like us. You know, we, 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 could, we have the same kind of an attitude sometimes and say, um, hey, I read my Bible twice today. How about you? Oh, yeah? How many sermons did you listen to this week? I listened to five. You know, we, we talk this way, you, just like the Pharisees. Hey, I went to church Sunday night. Oh, you only went on Sunday morning. Shame on you. you know, we, we, we can talk this way, right? Just like the Pharisees. Well, that's the sort of thing going on here. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In case you're not getting what Jesus is saying here, let me, let me be clear, okay? What kind of an atmosphere is the wedding supposed to be? What's it supposed to be? Is it supposed to be sad, or is it supposed to be a time of joy and happiness? Right? Of course it's supposed to be a time of joy and happiness, right? If the wedding is, uh, you know, everybody's sad and, you know, well, I know there's a lot of crying that goes on, but if the crying is the morning kind of a crying, there's a problem here, right? Weddings are joyous occasions, and the and, and in this, this time period, the guests were actually free from religious duties during this time of celebration, which, by the way, it would last a whole week. It wasn't just a one-day thing. It wasn't just a couple hours. It was a whole week. And so the, and they, they, these celebrations go on and on and on for, the, for a whole seven days. So Jesus is using the, this example of the wedding here is to talk about the, the intense joy that should be taking place. But in contrast to that, fasting was something that, well, it wasn't, it wasn't joyous. It was supposed to be mourning over your sin. That was the purpose of fasting. In the Jews' eye, they were to be mourning over their sin. That was the purpose of it. So it's a big contrast here. I hope you get, I hope you understand what Jesus is trying to say, what he's trying to say. And then, and then Jesus goes on to use two illustrations here to, to kind of back up his point, if you will, to kind of further explain what what he means but look at the first illustration verse 16 verse 16 jesus says no one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made that's the first illustration all right you understand i don't know if you've ever tried doing this you take a take a patch maybe you're <laughs> if your kids are anything like me and my children, you know, you, you wear holes in your knees, right? You're, you're, yeah, it happens to your kids, I'm sure, right? You wear out your clothes, right? If, if you know, they don't outgrow them first. I was constantly crawling around on the ground and stuff, so I'd get, I'd get holes in my knees. Some, I'd say, hey, Mom, uh, my, my pants got holes in them. So she'd put a patch on, on the hole and, and whatever that clothing was. But Jesus is, is saying here that, hey, you can't take an unshrunken patch and stick it on a piece of, of clothing that's already been shrunk, and then later on when it gets washed, what happens? The unshrunken patch will shrink, and it's just going to... and It'll rip and pull and make a bigger hole than you started with, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. But what's the point? Well, I'll get to the point in a moment. All right? But let's look at the second illustration, because it's, it's the same sort of idea, and then I'll explain what I think is going on here. Second illustration is verse 17. 
Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Okay, you need to understand uh, something of that time. They, what they'd often do is, is to have, you know, they'd, they didn't go to the takeaways or, uh, you know, the dairy and, and buy their, their bottled water, right? You know, that, that didn't exist. <laughs> so what they had to do is they, they would kill a goat or something, you know, something like that. And uh, they would turn the, you know, cut off the goat skin and they'd use that goat skin. They'd seal it and turn it inside out and all that good stuff. And, well, there's an example of a small wine skin for you. And so they would use, they'd use the skin of an animal to hold their wine or their water and then they could droop it over their donkey or the mule or camel or whatever if they're out in the desert. So they'd have something to drink. So that was the, the most affordable way for, for these people to have, have a container to hold their liquid in. Now what's the point here? You say, why is Jesus using these illustrations? A, a patch on a garment, new wine put into old wineskins. What's the point? Well, what's going to happen, okay, if you have an old wineskin, an old I don't know. Let's let's call it a goat. All right. Let's say you killed a goat. All right. This this goat skin's been out in the sun for a while. And what do you think is going to happen to that skin of that goat after it's been out in the sun for a while? It's going to you know dry up, shrivel, probably crack. And you go and you put in new wine that's in the process of fermenting. Which, if you've ever done that sort of thing, it, it's going to expand. Right. You start putting in fermented grape juice in there and it's going to expand and something that's old and dried out and cracked is not going to be able to hold it. It's not, it's not elastic. It's not flexible. So it's going to break. That's what Jesus is, is talking about here. And, and you say, well, again, what's the point? Well, these, these two illustrations are making the same point. Jesus is, is talking about the, the patch, if you will, referring to him and the, the kingdom and the gospel. You can't take something new like, you know, his teaching in the gospel and then put it on top of the old, which was Judaism, and, and expect those two to work together. They don't. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus was not simply bringing in a revised and updated Judaism. Jesus is saying, don't take me and the gospel and my kingdom and put it on the old. Try to attach it to the old. Don't try to sew it onto the old. It's not going to work. Jesus is, I'm not founding a new sect within Judaism. That's what he was teaching and doing were such that they could not be contained within that accepted Jewish system. Which is why he had often so much problem, didn't he? And so to attempt to confine his followers within the limits of the old religion would actually to be inviting danger and disaster. Now, please understand, this this didn't mean that Jesus was rejecting the Old Testament. Okay, some some have taken it that far. Uh, you read enough commentaries on this, you'll even come up with that bad that bad teaching. No, we we already saw in Matthew chapter five, right? Matthew chapter chapter five, Jesus said, "No, I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament scriptures. I came to fulfill them." So we know that that that's a that's a bad interpretation. He didn't come to reject the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. So what he rejected here was the current religious practices allegedly based on the Scriptures. That's the problem that Jesus has here. So, what lessons can we learn from this story? Jesus' teaching has important ramifications for our church and for the church today. There's several issues I think we need to explore here. Number one, we live in a time of joy, but also a time of serious reflection. All right? Jesus uses the illustration of a wedding, okay? That's a time of joy. But, you know, in the midst, in the midst of our, the world we live in, it needs to be serious reflection. In fact, the New Testament commands joy in the midst of trials. Read James chapter 1, verse 2. That's a command to have joy in, even in the midst of trials. But how is that possible? Okay? Some of us wonder, man, <laughs> You know, if I'm going through cancer treatment, for example, how in the world can I have joy in the midst of that? How is that possible? Well, we can have joy because 
God will work everything for our good and His glory. Do you believe that? If you believe that, that is, that is the rock-solid foundation that can take you through anything. We, we can have joy. Therefore, we can place our hope firmly on God, place our hope firmly on God's promises. Right? Look at those promises in Scripture. Read them, claim them, believe them, pray them. And at the same time, we must not forget that evil is also rampant in our world. It is. Of course you know this. Satan and the demons, they'd love to destroy God's church. They would love to destroy this church. They'd love to destroy you. More believers I've heard in the 20th century have been martyred than all the centuries previous. So yes, evil is rampant in our world, and I believe the end times are near, and so we need to do what Jesus talks about at the end of the Bible. Say, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. That's what Maranatha means. Come Lord Jesus. He will. We need to be ready for it. Number two, we should reflect the newness of the gospel we need to reflect the newness of the gospel the old forms of the jewish religion are often reflected in the sort of traditions that maybe you demand maybe i've i've been demanding in my life people down through the ages we, you know we we love to seek our comfort zones in every area of our lives we love our comfort zones don't we that's just natural we uh Determine our traditions by our comfort zones a lot of times. Often that's based on what you grew up with. Um, those traditions, though, aren't always good, okay? Yeah, I'm not trying to trash traditions. I love traditions. But you need to understand, traditions are not always good. Sometimes they can actually be bad. Jesus demanded openness to new ways. And this doesn't mean that we reject all traditions. Again, okay? That's not the point. But it does require us to have an openness to fresh ideas and, and, and even style. Pharisees weren't open to that, though. Listen to this amazing quote, this commentator, what he says. Quote, All Christians would do well to reflect on whether their demeanor, lifestyle, and words convey to others, especially the unsaved, this joy of salvation and the lively presence of Jesus, or whether... They communicate, even unwittingly, a dour, judgmental attitude that is quicker to point out the wrongs of others. We must also consider, even as the message of the gospel remains unchanged, whether the methods of evangelism, preaching, church growth, music, and worship, once effective in different circumstances, have turned counterproductive and need to be replaced by new methods that will more effectively win and minister to the current generation. End quote. Nothing wrong with thinking about that. In fact, we should think that way. That should be the normal way of our thinking. At the same time, never being ashamed of the gospel of Christ, never changing on those, the, particularly the essentials, like the gospel and all the other core doctrines that we must home firmly to those, never changing on those. But sometimes we turn our, our preferences into doctrine. Right? Right? That's, that's dangerous. That's, that's the sort of thing the Pharisees were doing at this time. We can turn our preferences on all sorts of things like Bible translations or music or our, our dress or where we go, what we say, you know, these sort of things. You can have preferences that aren't even, Bible doesn't mention anything on them. We turn them into something that's, that's equal with the gospel. And it's, it's not. We need to be aware of that. So we should reflect the newness of the gospel. Number three, Jesus, what do we learn? We, we learn that Jesus determines the pattern for Christian living. He's your pattern. You're to be conformed to the image of Christ, not your spouse. Not to be conformed to the image of your pastor. Praise God for that. <laughs> Man, you'd be a pathetic group if you did that. But don't look at me. Look at Christ, right? Don't, don't look at your spouse or your children or, you know, some, some amazing preacher somewhere else or some, some author that you like. That's, that's not the standard. Christ is the standard. And there's a problem though. In our age of individualism, too many Christians maintain a secular lifestyle and, and even, even a secular set of priorities sometimes. 
Let me give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, for example, we attend church services sometimes when it just suits our schedule. Right? Which is why nowadays we've got, got some churches having church services on Friday night, Saturday. You know, just want to cater to the crowd when it's convenient, when it suits their schedule. Sometimes we evangelize when it's only convenient. We obey the Bible as long as it does not cost us anything. What I'm trying to say, my friends, is we make Christ, sometimes, maybe you've even heard this before. You may have even heard someone preach this. Make Christ a part of your life. You ever heard that? That's wrong. Christ doesn't be a part of your life. Christ is your life. Your entire life. You don't just fit them in here and there, you know, if you got room in your schedule and if it's convenient and it doesn't cost you anything, Christ is your life. You drop everything and you follow Him. Wherever He goes and wants you to do, you do it. And so this is, this is very similar to what the Judaizers in Paul's day, they wanted to be half Jew and half Christian. Paul had a lot to say about that. Read the book of Galatians. And so in both cases, though, the result is syncretism. Try to sync up, and, 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 and it doesn't work, right? God's not, God's not going to accept that. You say, why? Well, the answer is this. Christ has set the rules for the Christian life. You say, how do you know that? Well, read Matthew 5 through 7, right? There's just some of them, okay? That's not all, but Matthew 5 through 7 is, is, is very helpful for us. That's Christian living. Christ is laying it out there for us. We've seen some of those rules already. We're going to see more. And by the way, those are not optional. Okay? Jesus, <laughs> he doesn't preach this stuff and say, do it when it's convenient and it doesn't cost you anything and when it fits into your schedule. No. This is what we're to be 24-7. The way of Christ is the only way. There isn't any other way. It, it, it's, it's Christ or the world, right? You, you worship yourself or you worship God. That's, that's all there is. There's no middle ground there. So may God help us to love sinners as King Jesus loves sinners. Right? I hope if you get anything else out of this message, here's what I want you to walk away with, is that the King loves sinners. Jesus is the King. He loves sinners. He reaches out to sinners. He reaches out to me and to you. He loves sinners. Praise God for that, because if He didn't love sinners, we'd have no hope. Oh, there'd be no hope. So we need to love sinners as well, just as He does. May we love Him because He first loved us.